Hello, Clash fans, and welcome to episode 28 of Two Minutes and 59, Lake County, Illinois' favorite, if not only Clash-inspired podcast. I'm your host, David Von Evers. It's been a few weeks, uh, a couple of weeks, since we recorded an episode, and uh, so I'm a little behind the game in terms of posting on this website, but I thought I would sit down on a rainy Sunday afternoon in the middle slash towards the end of September. I guess it's September 17th as I'm recording it. By the way, it is Constitution Day in the United States. This is the anniversary of the day that our Constitution was signed into law. So happy Constitution Day or what's left of it. Uh, I say that uh, cynically, um, but uh, not without reason. Uh, Things have um, obviously, as anybody's paid attention to, American politics lately, things haven't necessarily gone swimmingly for the U.S. Constitution lately. Uh, Our Supreme Court has overturned longstanding rights that people have had, and there is a constant uh, constant assault on our um, institutions and our democracy. So here we are in the year 2023, and I never thought I'd be saying it, but let's hope the, the Constitution lives to see another birthday. But that's not really why you called, as I like to say. Um, as I said, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I recorded an episode, and so I'm thinking back over what's happened uh, through September. Of course, we had in the United States, we had the Labor Day holiday at the beginning of the month, followed a week later by the anniversary of 9-11. And so those are a couple of things that um, I would like to chat about a little bit today. And they, they also relate to um, the, uh, some of the Clash songs I've been working on. I've, I've talked the last few episodes about trying to work on a new song every week on the guitar, as I'm a pretty mediocre guitar player, but I have worked on a lot of Clash songs over the years, and uh, so uh, relative to the holidays that have come up or the observances that have come up, not so much um, with... Um, Constitution Day, maybe for the next episode I'll work on uh, Know Your Rights from Combat Rock, which would be sort of appropriate. But given that we um, had Labor Day uh, recently in the United States, one of the songs that I worked on uh, recently was Clampdown, pretty cool song, um, and fairly easy to play on the guitar. And then uh, when it comes to um, the 9-11 acknowledgement, uh, you don't want to say celebration, it was not anything to celebrate, but the acknowledgement of 9-11 in the United States. Uh, I worked on uh, the song Tommy Gun off of Give Enough Rope, which is a song, you know, pre-9-11, obviously, since it comes from the late 70s, but it's very much about political violence and terrorism and the Clash's views on those things. So we'll get to that. But um, more recently... (laughs) Before I had an opportunity to sit down and uh, record an episode, I saw that Jan Wenner, do you pronounce it Jan or Jan? I don't know, J-A-N-N, Wenner of um, of Rolling Stone. Um, It's funny, in my old age, I have to stop and make sure I'm pronouncing names correctly. But anyway, he he recently uh, wrote a book, and in interviews about the book, I guess someone had asked him about whether or not he had included black artists and women, or, or they asked him why he did not include uh, very many black artists and women. And he made some bizarre statement um, about 
black artists and women not being quote unquote as articulate in his mind as some of the white men in rock music. And uh, so needless to say, he's been getting a lot of grief for that. I just have to point out, you know, that, you know, how do you make a, first, first of all, how do you create a, an, a magazine about rock music, which quite obviously has its roots in black music, um, as many people would say, basically Little Richard invented the form. Um, but even before Little Richard, there were, you know, the great blues musicians there that who um, inspired it. There's, of course, Sister Rosetta Tharp, which, you know, an, an artist that many of us didn't really know about until more recently. When I say us, I mean white folks, obviously. Many of us didn't really know about until recently, but she was certainly one of the earliest innovators in rock music. I just saw today that she was born in 1915, and she was one of the, you know, the innovators of, not just of rock music generally, but specifically of rock guitar. And she was a very good guitar player, very talented guitar player. And needless to say, rock music would not exist without uh, the blues guitarists and the early rock and roll guitarists who really taught everybody how to play that kind, you know, how to play electric music. Um, if it hadn't been for, you know, Muddy Waters has a song called The Blues Had a Baby and they named it Rock and Roll. And truer words were never spoken. And if it hadn't been for a lot of those artists coming up from the Delta and coming to places like Chicago and St. Louis and, and Memphis and other cities where, you know, they found greater acceptance and, you know, they plugged in their guitars and started playing electric blues, you wouldn't have rock and roll at all without that evolution. And you certainly wouldn't have had rock and roll without the early black artists um, who created the whole thing. And, and it's just it's just odd to me that somebody... And by the way, I, I'm jumping all over the place here, but by the way, Wenner named the magazine, at least in part, after the Muddy Waters song, Rolling Stone, which is subtitled Catfish Blues, but the song is called Rolling Stone. That's where the band, the Rolling Stones, took their name. And in the inaugural ep, uh, edition or uh, issue, I guess, of Rolling Stone magazine, on the cover, you know, you've seen the famous picture of of John Lennon and the and the army hat and the army helmet, I should say. Um, the article that accompanies the opening edition that talks about where the name comes from specifically mentions not just the band the rolling stones not just the dylan song like the rolling stone but the muddy water song rolling stone and then obviously the adage of rolling stone gathers no moss whatever but one of the clear inspirations for the name of the magazine was a muddy water song you know so how you disrespect the legend muddy waters when you're talking about artists who are, um, you know, who are important and quote-unquote articulate enough to make it into his book. I don't know. It's pretty mind-boggling to me that you could say something that ignorant. Um, but of course, what ended up happening, kind of funny uh, in a way, is that the he was uh, kicked off the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for those comments. And, you know, frankly, he deserved it. I know a lot of folks will cry about cancel culture and this, that, and the other thing, and I've talked about that before. I won't bore you with my thoughts on that subject. Nonetheless, here, I got a, I, I just dropped a guitar pick on the floor. Nonetheless, <laughs> um, you know, 
screw that guy. I mean, how do you, how do you say something that dumb about um, rock music and pop music? And by the way, you know, since this is a Clash podcast, I mean, the, the Clash were very clearly conscious of the influence of black music on their own, uh, on their own music. They even did, you know, the gospel-sounding song called The Sound of Sinners off of uh, the, the Sandinista record. They obviously were heavily in- influenced by reggae. Um, they, they, as I've talked about before, they got into hip-hop early on and were, were sort of big innovators in hip-hop. But in any event, not innovators really, but innovators for uh, white UK artists. They were innovators in that sense. Um, so needless to say, The Clash had a great uh, appreciation for black artists and black music. And so um, as did, you know, as did a lot of the English bands. Um, you know, I, I read an interview with Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones back in the probably early 80s, 81, 82, something like that, in Rolling Stone magazine, ironically enough. And if I remember correctly, he said something along the lines of basically all the Stones ever wanted to do was be a Chicago blues band. That was their like inspiration. That was the thing that they aspired to. And if you know anything about their ties to Chicago, you know they they made a number of appearances, at least two major appearances at blues clubs in Chicago, playing with folks like Muddy Waters, backing him up, you know, because to to show their appreciation for the music. So um, Wenner uh, really stepped in it, and I. I'm not going to feel too bad about it. But anyway, getting back to the, when I say not going to feel too bad about it, I mean not going to feel too bad about it is getting booted off of the, uh, the, the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But anyway, getting back to what I was talking about, uh, initially, like I said, we had a couple of, uh, couple of sort of holidays or observances here in the United States over the past few weeks, including Labor Day, and so uh, one of the things that I had been working on um, on a guitar was uh, clampdown. That's my uh, little uh, screwing around with clamp clampdown on the guitar. I'm not 100% sure that my guitar is in tune since this is, uh, although it's not plugged in, this is my... Um, my this is my Telecaster, which is not plugged in, but I uh, I literally bought a guitar based on the fact that Joe Strummer played a Telecaster. But anyway, um, so I started fooling around with this song. As I have said on multiple occasions before, I will not play for you. The entire song that was it that's as much as i'll play um of clampdown but because uh, i'm not going to subject people to my poor guitar playing but um so when labor day came around a few weeks back uh, a couple weeks back i was thinking a lot about how the clash were really really perceptive in and i guess this maybe in some ways ties to the fact that it's constitution day uh for what it's worth in the u.s but anyway uh i was thinking a lot about um here I am drinking water on my podcast because I'm such a professional, but I was thinking a lot about the way the, that song in particular and the Clash's music in, generally, in general rather, um, seem to, to grasp the way, um, you know, capitalists and big business and so forth used um, the, the class divisions basically to create an environment in which 
uh, fascism thrives, right? So the whole theme of Clampdown basically is that, you know, these, you know, these oppressed workers uh, carry on oppression and encourage division and, and their, their way of uh, coping maybe with the, the fact that they've been exploited is to continue the exploitation of others. Um, it talks about the connection between you know, the, the oppression of the working class and the rise of anti-Semitism, you know, the, the way in which, again, the powerful people <clears throat> use oppression to divide groups one against the other, pit groups against each other. And it is such a prescient song in so many ways because, I mean, we're seeing in, in this country today, I mean, we're seeing this weird kind of right-wing populism arising um and, and you know and I, I think i've touched on this before but as a person who you know majored in history in college i'm a little in tune to this but there's always been unfortunately some crossover between populism and you know right-wing authoritarianism at least in america and i think that was true you know in the in the early nazi period too in germany where you know I mean, Hitler called his party the National Socialist Party, not because he was actually a socialist, but because he was trying to present himself as a populist figure who respected workers, which is ironic because he, <clears throat> pardon me, he, he respected big business uh, like Daimler and, and uh, uh, you know, the big chemical companies and, and the big uh, automotive companies and Krupps and the war machine. You know, far more than he represented, or he, he respected the actual worker in the factory. But he used that terminology in order to try to appeal to sort of a populist base. And then at the same time, of course, tried to use that sort of fake populism to divide Germans one against the other and to demonize minorities and so forth. And I think the song Clampdown really kind of captures that, that mentality. Um, this is a song from the late 70s, you know, uh, when uh, it's on the London Calling album. And I think the rise of Thatcherism created, Thatcherism in, in the UK and then Reaganism in the United States a couple of years later. I think it really kind of, you know, it showed the sort of overlap between some populist ideology and frankly, far right-wing authoritarianism and racism and anti-Semitism and so forth, in that, you know, people like Thatcher and Reagan created these personas that, although they were pretty far to the right, you know, they actually, try, they managed to get a lot of working class people to sign on to, the, you know, make America, sort of make America great again, like Trump, you know, this this flag waving, you know, um, kind of mentality of um, that that appeals to some people uh, on a populist level. It's it's so anyway. I think I think the song Clampdown really sort of captured that um, and captured the way in which all of these things are interrelated. You know, um, the oppression of workers, oppression of minority groups, um, using uh, the, the, the mechanisms of political power and economic power to pit groups against each other, um, to divide people and make them hate each other. And of course, sadly enough, you know, humans are very 
responsive to things like prejudice, right? So it's easy to when you're when you're putting sort of economic pressure on people or you're manipulating them from an economic point of view and they're struggling to get by. And they may also be, you know, sort of predisposed to be suspicious of people who are different or be, you know, or, or to be racist or anti-Semitic or whatever. It's easy to push the demonization of other groups when you've already got your, you know, your hobnail boot on their neck. And you can say, look over there, look at that group, you know, hate those people too. And so, you know, I think that I sometimes I think we get into these debates about whether, you know, um, it's economic anxiety versus, you know, actual racism and prejudice and so forth. And I, I always want to say, I think it's both. <laughs> I think it's both of those things. I think economic oppression and racism and anti-Semitism and misogyny and homophobia and all these things, xenophobia in general, I think they all go hand in hand. And I think when you, when you can appeal to people's prejudices, it makes it much easier to pick their pockets, as LBJ said many, many years ago. And by the same token, when you oppress them, um, you know, when you oppress them economically and they're struggling, it's very easy to kind of capitalize on whatever prejudices they may have. Now, this isn't a slight against working class people. There's a lot of great labor leaders, great union members, great working class people all over the country. And in fact, you know, in America, the labor movement has become profoundly, um, you know, uh, well, profoundly, that's not the right word, has become sort of pro-immigration um, and pro-immigration reform. And they really, there are unions who really recognize that they need to expand the base in order to, um, to make sure they survive. And so they need to be able to attract women and they need to be able to attract recent immigrants to the country and they need to be able to attract black folks and so forth because the unions won't survive without the membership. Um, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, in, in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president of the United States, Richard Trumka had to make a, an impassioned plea to get union workers to, to support Barack Obama because he was afraid that some white union members may not be that enthusiastic about um, voting for a black guy, you know, frankly. Uh, and so he made an impassioned plea. Now, Trumka, as you may know, has been, um, you know, a critic of the um, of the Democratic Party at times. He's he's you know he's not he's not whoops <laughs> he's not one to go easy on any politician or any party. But uh, he understood the importance of 2008. And anyway. So I, I think that, it, that get it, circling back to Clash, I think Clampdown was a pretty um, prescient song, if you will. Um, and then again, you know, the other thing that happened um, in uh, the last few weeks um, was uh, the anniversary of 9-11. And I'm always taken back every year to the Clash song, uh, Tommy Gun. Apologies for messing that up, but that was just a little snippet of Tommy Gunn. 
Uh, a fun song to play, by the way. Really simple chords. It's got one of my favorite chords of all time, C sharp minor, um, which is one of the easier bar chords to learn. Bar in the fourth chord, and basically you're playing, it's basically B minor up, up a, a couple of frets. But anyway, um, but more importantly, what the song is about, you know, this is again, this is from like what, 1977, 78, 79, somewhere in that time frame when Give Them Enough Rope uh, came out. And they were talking about, you know, the terrorism of the day. Um, people, I think, tend to think in some ways, at least people in the United States tend to think that uh, terrorism and political violence was a thing that, that only really began in uh, 2001 with the 9-11 attacks. But of course, you know, back in the 70s when the clash were just getting started, started out, the clash were just starting out. Um, this is what happens when you try to do this on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Uh, but anyway, there were, there were all kinds of sort of high profile, um, you know, people hijacked planes and there was the raid at Entebbe in, in Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, of course the troubles in, in Ulster and, and, um, South Africa had some issues with where the ANC were, were the ANC were not, you know, I, I, I would push back strongly on the way the U S and other, um, countries, ca um, characterize the ANC. They were not really a terrorist organization, but they did from time to time use, um, you know, some tactics like blowing up a power station or that sort of thing uh, to, to kind of keep pressure on on the political um, uh, powers that be. But by and large, the ANC was much more of a political organization than a sort of a, a militia. But there were these groups all over the world. Um, many of them were legit involved in, I would say, legitimate nas um, national liberation struggles. I mean, certainly the ANC was, uh, but some of their tactics were, you know, from time to time, pretty violent. And um, what Tommy Gunn is really about, I think, is, is you know, just as a general matter, sort of rejecting the use of violence for political aims. You know, you recall that Joe Strummer famously said that the Clash were anti-racist, anti-violent, and, you know, anti-violence and anti-ignorance. Um, and so they were not ones who supported the use of political violence or violence for political aims. Um, Although they did, and I've talked about this here and there before, I mean, they supported national liberation movements, like, for example, you know, they supported the, the, the aims of the IRA without necessarily supporting the methods, but they certainly supported, you know, the, the political prisoners that the British uh, took, and they supported the hunger strikes and so forth. Um, so they were capable um, of distinguishing between the, the substantive movements and, you know, the, the national liberation movements and the, um, and the methods that some groups use that, you know, were, were um, not entirely savory, let's just say. But another really interesting aspect of this song, Tommy Gun, and this may not seem altogether relevant in the post um, 9-11 days because you don't see this so much. But back in the 70s and 80s, it, it was something that you did see where there were a lot of people 
um, outside of these areas where these national liberation movements were were working, so outside of the Middle East, outside of South Africa, outside of Northern Ireland, who um, there are a lot of people who sort of adopted as a, almost a kind of a personal style, sort of the look of um, the look of of uh, political extremists and terrorists because it was like it was almost like a fashion statement, and so there's a verse is. Um, there's a verse in the song Tommy Gunn that says, I'm going to get a jacket just like yours. I'm going to give my support to your false. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to get a jacket just like yours and give my false support to your cause. You know, this idea of um, from a distance saying, well, I, I think this sort of looks cool. So I'm going to I'm going to pretend that I'm part of this movement just because I like the look or I like the sort of the. You know, I want to be edgy and whatnot. And meanwhile, you know, real life people um, were dying. Um, he, they, they, he goes on to say, or the lyrics go on to say, let's agree about the price and make it one jet airliner for 10 prisoners, boats and tanks and planes, it's your game. Kings and queens and generals learn your name. And then he says, I see all the innocence, the human sacrifice, and if death comes so cheap, then the same goes for life. So, you know, like, you may have a legitimate struggle, right? You may have a legitimate reason to be fighting. But if you're basically just using violence in a way that just sort of begets more violence, um, you know, you're not you're not necessarily on the right side. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm not really articulating it well. But I think it's really a uh, a fascinating song. And I think the most interesting part is not just so much their critique of political violence as it is their critique of the way a lot of people sort of, you know, viewed this as a fashion statement or saw it as something that was cool. You know, oh, it's cool that they're, somebody is, you know, setting off bombs or hijacking planes or shooting up airports and stuff like that. And, you know, really... It's really kind of a, a, a colonial, Western sort of colonial viewpoint that you could look at the struggles going on in a place, um, you know, look at the struggles of Palestinian people or, or people in South Africa or, or Ulster. Or, or, of course, you know, again, we're talking about the clash. They also supported the Sandinista cause in um, Nicaragua. But, you know, you can support the cause, but but there's something kind of gross about just saying oh, I'm going to adopt this as sort of a fashion statement while they're actual human beings suffering. Now, I mentioned Nicaragua. I mean, that was a very different thing. Um, Nicaragua was a legitimate, you know, revolution. Um, the Sandinista movement was a legitimate revolution. Unfortunately, it, you know, when the Sandinistas came to power, the more authoritarian side of things emerged. We can talk about that another time. But um, in Nicaragua, it was a widespread uh, popular uprising, and there were people all across society. There were business leaders and journalists and, and religious leaders who supported the Sandinista movement, along with, of course, the unions and the and people who supported uh, labor reforms and, and land reform and, and things like that. So that that was a, an example of a of a revolution that didn't really be, begin as an authoritarian or a pro-authoritarian revolution but maybe went awry once once they took over. Anyway, putting all that aside, um, 
that anyway, the song uh, Tommy Gun really comes from more of a 70s perspective, but I think it's really interesting in terms of the sort of the callous way in which some of us looked at what was going on in these other parts of the world. What's, what's almost more frightening, though, is sort of what's happened since 9-11 and the, sort of the, the degradation of our Constitution and, and the fact that, you know, we sort of were, we were so eager and willing to give up personal freedom for um, the illusion of security in the, in the aftermath of 9-11. It, it's really kind of it's really kind of scary. Um, with all of the, you know, the surveillance and the, and the uh, electronic surveillance and all the things that have gone on um, since 9-11. So we went in a different direction after that event. Um, it was, we didn't glamorize uh, terrorism. We instead used it as an excuse to just go to war and kill innocent people and, and also uh, trash our own constitution. I saw something really interesting, by the way. <laughs> And, and I don't know what to make of it. I saw that there were some conservatives in America, you know, who now claim to be sort of anti-war, um, which is bizarre because they're the ones who brought us these wars, but they now claim to be anti-war. And I saw, I think it was that Madison Cawthorn, the guy from North Carolina, who had a brief stint in Congress before the Republicans disowned him. And he said something along the lines of, this was on Twitter, he said something along the lines of, you know, on 9-11, we remember the... 2,977 innocent victims of the terrorist attack who died for, you know, for things that weren't their fault. And then he said something along the lines of, and we also remember the something in the neighborhood of 1.4 or 1.5 million Muslim people who died in wars for things that weren't their fault. And I stopped, I stood back and I said, why, wait a minute, this is a Republican saying this? I mean, I don't, I'm a pretty cynical, skeptical, skeptical person, so I don't necessarily put a lot of faith in a guy like Madison Cawthorn. But the underlying point is really true. You know, we um, we were we were outraged by the attacks because how could they attack attack innocent Americans, no matter what their or innocent people, because they weren't just Americans. How could they attack innocent people um, just because they, we live in America? or we're visiting America or whatever, or doing business here, when the the beef that the terrorists have, you know, maybe with our government or maybe with other governments or other powerful people, but all these innocent people who died, they weren't to blame, right? Valid point, valid criticism. And I think that's one of the things that the clash is getting at in the song Timing Gun. But on the other hand, we then go and launch these wars, at least in part, based on our prejudiced views of Muslim people and prejudiced views of people who live in majority Muslim countries. And many, 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 many more innocent people died in these unnecessary wars than died on 9-11 or in all of the terrorist attacks combined. And so, you know, it's a legitimate point. You know, we, we say you shouldn't have killed innocent people just because you believe in your cause or you believe in your, you know, religious principles. Valid, true, correct. But, but we then launched these wars where a huge part of the motivation was blaming Muslim people generally for the acts of a very few, right? And millions or hundreds of thousands of innocent people either died or lost their homes, their businesses, suffered horrible injuries. You know, all of these, all of the horrors of war visited on these people 
at least in part because they're Muslim people living in majority Muslim countries. But I do, you know, it's it's a topic for another day. I don't really I don't really believe that very many Republicans who say things like that are sincere. I don't know that Madison Cawthorn is a particularly sincere individual when he says that. But it is an interesting the, the underlying point I think is valid. And we can talk about the hypocrisy of Republicans in America who got us into these wars um, and now are claiming to be anti-war, which is truly bizarre. But I don't think we should lose sight over the underlying point that he made. So anyway, that's my super cheery return to the podcasting game after, um, after having been off for a little while. Uh, so I hope you had a lovely Labor Day if you were uh, celebrating a few weeks back. Um, I hope you're enjoying the, the last days of um, what's left of the summer of uh, 2023. And like I said at the beginning, I hope our Constitution uh, is around another day. Anyway, thanks for listening. I apologize for this sort of weird rambling conversation, but this is what I do. Um, so it's, it's what my uh, friend John used to call it. It's stream of conversation. So thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Please leave any comments in the comment section below. And I will talk to you next time.